This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research and Wisdom Training ETA Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or t- affiliates. I have two guests local in the CEO with me. We have uh, two actually clients of Wisdom Tree. Um, Andrew Barron, who's the chief investment officer at Butterfield Asset Management. Jonathan Heckscher, he's the director of fixed income investment strategy at Pennsylvania Trust. Gents, welcome to our Wharton studio. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. Thanks for coming down here. Uh, before we have a, an hour conversation with both Andy and John, we're going to talk to Professor Siegel here for some commentary on the markets. Um, I think we're just getting him uh, dialed in. He's he's traveling, and we're going to have him for some commentary. Um, I, we don't have him, but uh, we'll, we'll try to come back to him. Um, but but John and, and Andy, um, so you guys, maybe just talk a little bit about Pentrust and then, then you for Butterfield Asset Management. So, John, t- maybe tell a little bit, our, our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and, and what you do at Pentrust. Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, well, Pennsylvania Trust is a uh, independently employee-owned uh, firm here in, right outside of Philadelphia in Radnor. We really focus on everything from trust administration, investment management, estate planning, financial planning, tax planning, and, and uh, as well as special needs trusts. We manage about $3.5 billion in assets under management and uh, administration and really focus on uh, more of a holistic approach towards our clients in that we really view our clients as sort of a partner to us. And um, in doing so, are constantly working with our families, with our nonprofits, figuring out their goals and and going from there. Um, Andy, so maybe just briefly on on Butterfield Asset Management, tell a little bit, a little bit about what you guys what you guys do. Okay, uh, Butterfield, uh, the parent company, is a uh, a bank that's uh, domiciled in Bermuda. It's 150 years old. Uh, we recently listed on the New York Stock Exchange, so it's the oldest bank listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, the asset management subsidiary where I'm the CIO, uh, we manage about $5 billion in assets under management, all discretionary. Um, uh, we have our own sort of family of, of funds as well. As you mentioned, we're a, a wisdom tree investor. Um, the business is sort of divided up into uh, sort of high net worth individuals and trusts um, and also some uh, some institutional presence, particularly in local pensions, uh, captive insurance companies, things like that. Um, we're fully fully uh, uh, offshore financial institutions, so 
Uh, we have uh, offices uh, around, uh, pretty much around the world now. We just did an acquisition to bring on a Singapore and Mauritius office, but predominantly uh, Bermuda, Guernsey, and Cayman Islands. Very interesting. Now, John, you and Andy know each other going back in the day. You both uh, have some Bermuda background that I just learned about. How did you uh, maybe sort of talk about your background living in Bermuda for for a while and, and how you got to know Andy? Sure. I, I started my career in Boston, but then uh, I guess about 25 years ago moved to Bermuda uh, to work for a fixed income firm there. After being there for a while, I had I had moved over to a an offshore brokerage arm, um, and in doing so, as we were expanding, we were actually looking for another fixed income person to come along. And through a, a mutual acquaintance, Andy uh, appeared on the radar. So I was lucky enough to to work with Andy for about three years before he moved over to Butterfield. So we we don't talk uh, we don't have uh, a lot of discussions on Bermuda on the program, but uh, Bermuda, you know, we were just talking has this perception of being this tax haven, and maybe some of that's going away. But Andy, you want to just give a few seconds on Bermuda? Why? What got people? What got you to Bermuda besides John? And then, and sort of staying in Bermuda, maybe sort of talk a little bit about the people there and and sort of the economy there. Yeah, the um, the. The thing about Bermuda is it's a it's a it's a nice place to live. So uh, it has one of the highest per capita incomes in the world. Uh, it's a it's a you know a, a fully first world country. It has a pretty uh, diverse financial sector. It has uh, one of the largest reinsurance uh, centers in the world. I think the 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 concept that that Bermuda is a tax haven is an outdated concept. Uh, the world doesn't work uh, in financial secrecy terms anymore. Um, it it just simply doesn't work that way. The regulatory environment doesn't allow for it, and the regulator the regulatory environment in in Bermuda is 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 well respected and and stringent. So it has its it has its um, specialties in terms of um, insurance and reinsurance. Um, but overall, you know, the people are great. It's a nice place to live. I've lived there for fourteen years. Kids were born there. Very nice. Um, Maybe we, could, we could talk a little bit about um, sort of high-level market thoughts, how you guys both build portfolios uh, and, and sort of thinking about just sort of portfolio construction. Um, so, John, maybe starting with you, how, how do you think about – you talked about the, the, your different client base that you're, you're serving here in the U.S. How do you think about high levels, how you construct portfolios, and then we could talk about your sort of thoughts on the markets there? Sure. You know, I think the first thing that's important to us is that each of our clients are going to be different. So, you know, we look at every single – new client as a challenge to figure out what that, whether it be a family, whether it be a nonprofit institution, what the real goals are um, in in building a portfolio. And then from there, coming up and really deciding the amount of risk that that client is willing to take. Um, we then help them sort of walk through that, whether it be a family, creating the family mission, uh, really making sure that that it's multi generational in the, in the relationship. I think that's important because we want to make sure as wealth is passed on from generation to generation that that wealth, the actual uh, how that wealth is created, is something that's known by the next generation. We feel that's important in that we want to make sure that that legacy lives on. So. Moving forward to building a portfolio, we really do so both through a, a number of models that we have have built over the years, whether it be an asset allocation approach 
or whether it be more towards one of our equity strategies. We have a, a growth, large cap growth strategy. We have an equity income strategy as well as multiple fixed income strategies. And blending those together to try to achieve the risk level that, that the client is is really seeking becomes very important. So in doing so, we sort of frame it from a, a low-risk model to a more aggressive model. We really build our portfolios If it, when we're talking about asset allocation. We really look for, uh, I guess you could call it a core satellite approach, in that we will build the foundation using, if, if it's something like a nonprofit, usually using something, maybe a, a broad-based ETF to try to, to capture the the beta of the market, just the efficiency of the market. And we'll overlay that with specific factor-based ETFs and then only go into sort of the satellite active positions where that active management has proven over time. If you look at things like small cap in the U.S. or emerging markets or a lot of international, you have that track record of of outperformance over a long period of time for, for the active managers. So that's sort of how it's built uh, again, it's every client's going to have a, a different portfolio. Um, you know, the process is intact for everyone, but what what it ends up looking like really needs to be tailored to that client. Yeah, and Andy, how's, how's your thought process when you think about building portfolios for Bermuda based or, or offshore based investors? Like, how do, what anything unique challenges you're trying to solve for? Um, we, in general, I mean, we don't have to worry too much about tax. So one of the things that that John worries about for clients um, and has a whole department that's devoted to is tax. Essentially, um, you know, we don't have we don't really have that. We, we have the luxury of being able to essentially ignore that. Hmm. So, in some ways, portfolio construction might be a little bit easier. Um, you know, you don't have to do any kind of tax loss harvesting or or any of that any of that kind of year end stuff that um, that happens in in you know the domestic financial markets. So I'd say that. On the whole, um, we're very globally focused, so um, we don't have have a particular bias to the United States. Um, you know, obviously, we're a dollar-based uh, institution primarily, except uh, in Guernsey, which is uh, does things in sterling a little bit. Um, but even regardless of what your home currency is, um, we have a pretty global focus um, in terms of where we're investing. Um, you know, on the on the on the portfolio construction side, you know we uh, we allocate assets across essentially four different uh, broad asset asset classes. So we're you know you're looking at cash, um, fixed income, equities, and alternative assets or non traditional asset classes, and that's public market uh, non traditional asset classes. So not private market mm-hmm. PE and things like that, at least within a discretionary mandate. Um, and across that, uh, we tend to be, uh, we tend to run it with an active fixed income discipline um, across any kind of the, the risk spectrum of what you're looking at. So a client that has 70% in fixed income gets active fixed income. A client that has 25% fixed income gets active fixed mm. income for the most part. You know, our minimums are such that, you know, we're dealing with relatively relatively decent sized portfolios, and so that you know you're able to do that uh, in a in an account of that uh, that portfolio size. So um, we we take a very active approach on the fixed income side, which is a lot different than some sort of you know 
especially in the private client space, you know, you get stuff just put in the portfolio. It's buy and hold. It's, you know, buy your bog standard names and forget about them. Uh, we don't run the fixed income discipline like that. I'm a bond guy by trade. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, so yeah. Let's, let's, talk, let's drill into that for a second because I think a lot of, you know, when you think about it, and John talked about the, the use of ETS for some beta, and certainly if you look at the last decade, equities, you've seen a huge flow of equity ETFs, but and, and sort of out of active equity managers. Now, fixed income has done well uh, in terms of active still dominating. Is there something unique? Can you talk about what you think is unique about the fixed income category that might are, are fixed income active managers going to always be able to outperform the indexes? Uh, what do you, and sort of as a fixed income guy yourself, are you, are you does Butterfield have their own fixed income traders or yeah. are you outsourcing to other active managers? We outsource very little in the fixed income space. So the things that we outsource on fixed income, uh, we, we do all of the investment grade corporate and all the investment grade space ourselves. And how big is that team? Uh, we're, it depends on how you measure it because it, it cuts across the different offices. But I mean, we the the fixed income team itself is sort of a core of four people okay. um and then we you know we use a lot of of outside resources for that on the research side so in other words we use people like uh like credit sites and people who do fundamental research in corporate in corporate bonds and we use uh you know strategy and economic services we 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 rely a lot on paid uh providers of yeah. of information you know people who there's no, there's no monopoly on on good ideas, and so you know the people that we pay for, uh, for strategic research, um, are are very good at what they do, and that that's that goes down to the to the level of of individual stock picking or or picking fixed income securities. What we don't do is we don't have a big team a team that's big enough to do the fundamental research on high yield for example so we'll use a high yield etf or an active manager in the high yield space if we're allocated to high yield so our decision in our team is going to be on a strategic or tactical basis do we want to be allocated do we want to have any clients assets allocated to high yield or emerging market debt and then we'll use a a, a third party uh to 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 get that executed so we do use ETFs. We do use active mm-hmm. managers a, a little bit in that space, but that's a, you know, John was talking about core satellite approach. That's sort of a satellite bit of the of the fixed income investment management part. the The core is investment grade, and we do the core. Uh, we do the core ourselves. Any any factors you believe in fixed income, John? Is there? Have you do you agree with the active approach, or do you do any beta there? You know, with it, within fixed income, our approach is very similar to, to what Andy just described in that, in that we manage our core generally internally um, and active. And I think that if you look at some of the data going backwards, when you do have periods of interest rates going sideways to higher, the ability of an active manager to sort of go outside of the duration restrictions that you'll very often have if you're just going into something like the the aggregate gives the active manager a chance to sort of show its stripes. And what we've found, you know, right now I look at a perfect example looking at the bond market. Everyone agrees that the bond market interest rates are going sideways to higher right now. People aren't very worried about the 10-year going back to 160. They're much more concerned about what does it mean that we've just touched three in the past couple of, of days or week. And because of that, if you if when I look at, at 
ways that our clients can utilize the bond market as sort of that hedge to the equity market, I think it's still very much intact if it's done the right way. Hmm. And I look at that by saying, for instance, uh, you know, we were able to buy a number of, of investment-grade instruments this week at roughly 3% for two-year to three-year pieces of paper. I'm very comfortable allowing my clients to sit in, in a strong credit for the next two years or three years and allow them to wait out any of the volatility that they're nervous about right now in the equity market rather than try to use the bond market as a traditional ballast where right now the, the inflation worries that have crept up over the past six months seems to have the bond market on edge. And what you've seen earlier this year even since the lows that we saw is that the bond market is down about 3.5% on the year and the equity market's down about to roughly 2%, um, not notwithstanding the, today's rally. So I think that now that you've seen that correlation that, that's always been there with a negative correlation that, that bonds have traditionally had dissipate this year, there's different ways to apply fixed income and still be able to diversify a portfolio and, and de-risk part of that portfolio. In high disagree. yield, yeah. Sorry, in high yield, for example, the the you know the last four months have been you know relatively benign for high yield, despite the fact that there's been a lot of equity volatility, and the you know that that part of the fixed income asset class has performed well because it's not a rates driven uh, part of the asset class necessarily. It's a short duration, uh, a shorter maturity asset. Um, and the longer duration assets have have not performed as a traditional, you know, what you think of as as John would put it, ballast to the portfolio. Um, you know, it, it, just to expand on what you said about uh, what you asked about uh, whether active management works in fixed income, there's been a great deal of study that's been done in the past on whether active managers add any value in the equity space, but there's been very little that's been done on multi-asset managers and whether multi-asset managers can can use tools to allocate across markets and do that well, right? So when you're talking about active management and manager skill, that's one of the things that I think requires a lot more academic study. Hmm. Same with fixed income. There hasn't been much there hasn't really been much academic research that's been done on whether there's manager skill in fixed income. But what has been done in that space has proven that it's easier. Well, I don't, I don't want to. Maybe not easier, but it, it's it's possible to outperform in, in in fixed income, where it's less likely to outperform in equities. Let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Andy Barron, Chief Investment Officer at Butterfield Asset Management. John Hexer, Director of Fixed Income Investment Strategy at Pennsylvania Trust. So, and Andy, I just want to follow up on this point about fixed income and active because I, I'd say in in equities, the standard narrative now is that active is going to underperform. But the standard narrative for fixed income is that active is always going to outperform these indexes, that the indexes are constructed so badly just by issuing, by allocating weight to the issuance that you're letting the issuers dictate your duration and your credit profile versus these very skilled active managers that could outperform. But you know, you you guys are doing a team of four people managing these fixed income portfolios. And I wonder if you think that there will be, just like there's factors in equities that are starting to be applied to sort of try to outperform in sort of smart beta category land. If you think it's possible in fixed income that that's going to eventually come there too and that, you know, maybe there will be more. 
competition. Yeah, potentially. I mean, the 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 issue with uh, with using factors in in fixed income as opposed to equities is it's a fixed income is a relative value world as opposed to equities, which is not necessarily as much of a relative value world. There's a lot more absolute value placed on 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 an equity because it can go to zero, right? Bond markets don't, particularly investment grade bond markets, uh, very very infrequently go to zero, right? Yeah. So stuff gets downgraded out of investment grade and could eventually go to zero. But we've had very few instances in the world where something's been single A rated or even triple B rated and gone to zero, right? I mean, obviously, Lehman notwithstanding and the credit crisis notwithstanding. Um, so, you know, there are ways – I think there are ways to do it. But I think it's – I think that uh, the the indices change as, as well much more dynamically than an equity index, so in other words, for example, over the last uh, five or six years, the investment grade – sort of if you look at investment grade corporates in the United States, the investment grade index has gotten much more low quality, right? So – That's like the rise of triple Bs. And- exactly. So there's been, there's been a great deal of issuance in this you know, low interest rate environment that we've, we've had for – seems like forever yeah. um, where – you know, companies are taking advantage of, and obviously, the Fed, the Fed's absolutely stated goal is to is to is to have people issue debt yeah. at low interest rates. Right, that's part of the goal of quantitative easing. But the we we've seen it. So people have issued debt, and the 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 overall uh, sort of leverage of corporate America has, has has risen, right? We're not in a in a deleveraging environment anymore. The overall leverage is, has risen. And with that, quality has come down. So if you if you take an investment grade corporate index and you say, okay, well what's in it? It's much higher triple B exposure than it than it used to be. Most of the banks in America are triple B rated. It used to be that most of the banks in America were double A rated a long mm-hmm. time ago. So you know the the composition of these things changes over time, and the composition has changed quite substantially. John, any so I, when you think about the sixth income, while we're just hammering this this point home, so you have credit tilts, and he's talking about the investment grade component getting downgraded in quality. Then there's duration tilts. Like, how do you think about duration risk today? So it sounds like you're going to this two two year. You know, you bought, recently bought some two year paper. Do, do you say? Is it everybody thinks that duration well, is a risk because rates are rising that it has you leaning higher to duration? Or are you with the crowd that rate risk is a real problem here for fixed income portfolios? You know, I, th- I think that when you're coming off the lows that we have as far as coupons, when you look at, at the 10-year treasuries being issued two years ago at one and a half, the upside to the bond market became very limited. That limitation, while while it's abated a little bit now that you're up closer to three percent, and and you have that inf- interest rate differential with some of the other global currencies, we'll, we'll put a ceiling somewhere in that in this mm-hmm. vicinity three four. I don't know what that that becomes, but I think that that upside of the market being limited is something that that we want to make sure that our clients aren't in fixed income for the wrong reasons. And that, yes, we want to make sure that it's a volatility mitigator when it comes to their equity portfolio, but also when you look at traditional trust clients, 
and and for that matter, traditional invest just retail clients or, or individual clients, they don't look at the bond market as an investment that goes down. The the last time, if you talk to people in our business, the last time that we've had a sustained bear market in bonds is when we first life, started a lifetime ago. <laughs> And, 1994 and 94, but before that, really, the prolonged wise, it was back in the in the late 70s, and not many people today are sitting in these chairs that were investing in in that that period. Well, I was seven in the late 70s, so I mean, <laughs> a little before my time. So, so I do think it's important to make sure that that when investing in bonds, clients understand why they're investing in bonds, and also understand the risks risks that come along with it, and that's where some of our shorter duration strategies right now make a lot more sense in that they will give a positive real yield, which they haven't gotten in a while when you when you take inflation into consideration, and still give you that in- income stream that, that clients desire at a volatility level that's more stomachable. If that, and yeah, and so the we'll curve has become so flat that, like, is there as much? Are you paid as much duration now? Like, we, we, last week we talked a lot about floating rate bonds. That whether it's in bank loans, the sort of LIBOR floaters, or even now Treasury floaters, you have a number of different options across the credits. You know how much credit risk you want to take, um, but that you're not paid as much on duration. Is that do you guys believe in yeah, the floating I mean, we're, part? We're, we 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 definitely we we started building a position in floating rate notes and portfolios in 2014 and we were too early doing that now it's frankly but now it's you know over the last over the last 18 months it's worked extremely well um you know building that floating rate note uh portion of the portfolio is protected capital on the downside in the fixed income market but i mean over the last quarter you, you know it, it's really a wake-up call for investors that you know bond markets can go down and you can lose money in the bond market and you know, as as John was saying about uh, about real rates, you know, over the last three years, sort of three years annualized, if you're just, you know, invested in 10-year treasuries over the last three years, you've lost money on a real basis. Regardless of, of volatility, you just don't have the yield in an environment where inflation is extremely low. So we've had negative, you know, real uh, real rates, real rates of return for fixed income investors for a long time. That's starting to change, but I think there's quite a distance to go on that. I think there's still there's we're steadfastly underweight duration within a fixed income portion of a portfolio or a standalone fixed income portfolio, but we're also underweight fixed income at an asset class level for a multi-asset class client. Interesting. Jeremy, I, I just sort of wanted to take a step back. You would ask Andy about factors making their way into the bond world. You know, I think we look at a lot of the equity factors when we're when we're sort of looking at the research behind what to buy and when to buy it. So we're constantly looking at whether it be the Russell 1000 as a proxy for the investment grade space or the 2000 as a proxy for uh, high yield. So I think we're we're using that that factor mentality in in creating where there's quality and where there's not. And I think that's something that worries us right now. When you look at, at some of the fundamentals of, of the Russell 2000 companies starting to roll over a little bit, uh, if that sort of carries on, one thing I think you will find in the bond market is that while liquidity has been very, very easy for, for a number of years now, especially in the last five years, as that liquidity dries up, as, as money is taken out of the system through central banking, 
it's one of those, I, I guess it was, was Buffett who said, you know, we'll, we'll see who's naked when the tide rolls out, meaning that, that when that dries up, the companies that are the, the non-earners are going to have, stru- have trouble refinancing debt when it comes due. So that's where I think it's very important to make sure that when you're looking at high yield, some of the fact, the quality factors that, that you're alluding to are, are used hmm. to help define how you're going to pick those investments. This, that's interesting, just following up on the, using the Russell 1000 and 2000 as proxies for investment grade and high yield. That's one, I, I sort of get maybe the point that large caps are tend to be more investment grade. Small caps, maybe they're the, the high, the sort of junkier credits. Certainly, in the Russell 2000, you get a lot more unprofitable companies than you do in sort of large cap Russell 1000 universe. Is there anything more to that factor lens? That's first I've heard of those two as proxies for investment grade and high yield. I look at it the other way. I look at it the op- in the opposite direction. So in other words, I think that the investment grade and, and high yield corporate space is a proxy for uh, in some ways leads and is and is potentially a signal for equities. So in other words Who's smarter, the the bond uh, the well, bond visual Unquestionably or the, the bond market. Un- is unquestionably smarter. with two the two Unque- bond guys. Here. Unquestionably. But it's not a matter of who's smarter. It's a matter of who picks the signals up better and who ignores momentum more than than the other. So, momentum is a big is a big factor in equity in equity markets, um, where it's not as much of a factor in bond markets. And so, I think when you have uh, when you start to see uh, problems in the bond market, you start to see um, spreads widening. You start to see people having trouble refinancing debt, as as John says, with higher interest rates. I think much higher interest rates than where we are now, but um, that's that can be a, a, a signal for uh, for for the equity asset class. The fact that we didn't see that signal in the last round of volatility that we had in equity markets was one of the reasons that ca- keeps us fully invested in equity markets. In actual fact, hmm. because we just did not see the kind of stress in bond markets that you would normally see in an event that leads up to a severe equity market drawdown. Very good. We're going to have to take a short break here, but stay tuned, everyone. After the break, we're going to continue our conversation with Andy and John. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and you're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I've got two guests in the studio with us, Andy Barron, Chief Investment Officer at Butterfield Asset Management, John Heckscher, Director of Fixed Income and Investment Strategy at Pennsylvania Trust. And right before the break, we were talking uh, with Andy and John, and Andy was talking about how the lack of uh, sort of signals from the credit market was keeping him sort of more bullish on equities. He, he talked about his position to be a little bit overweight equities versus fixed income. So, John, I don't know if we got your top-down asset allocation views when you think about building portfolios. Do you, do you agree with Andy? You'd be overweight equities versus bonds. How do you think about just where we are in the equity market cycles today? You know, you, you can start with the U.S., but maybe they'll take it globally. Sure. You know, I I do agree with Andy, and that I, I think that as far as where there's risk to take in the market while, while we were definitely in the later stages of, of this recovery, you do have have decent numbers across the board. You look at the what the Fed looks at, at and you have unemployment that is well below their, their full employment level. You have inflation that's pretty much gotten back to, to where they're going. You have fiscal stimulus that's coming into the market uh, relatively slowly, but at the same time, earnings that are growing at you know, 20 plus percent within the S&P, I think that it's 
that there's still a a reasonable uh, level of of confidence that that the equity market is intact as far as as a healthy equity market. I think it will remain more volatile than it's been in the past. I think that that's something that clients have obviously come to become very used to a low volatile market for the last couple of years. And, and now that we've gone through this first quarter where we've seen tons of volatility, I think that, that it sort of shook people a little bit. But it, but at its core, I don't think that as an asset allocator, when you're putting these diversified portfolios together, that you want to act hastily. Uh, um, I look at the equity market in general and say that, that you know we have a strategic position in the equity market. And right now we're slightly overweight that strategic level. Um, but overall, I think U.S. is in decent shape and growing at a decent level. GDP was a little stronger than expected when it came out last week. I think that's supposed to accelerate into the, se- the second half of the year. So I think the equity market, while being volatile, will be a nice place to be. We do believe also when it comes to the international markets that that equity markets internationally are also an important part of a portfolio and tend to be slightly overweight when it comes to international equities as well you know the one place that i think andy and i are a little bit different when when it comes to our company's philosophies is is we are on the lighter side of the alternative space and we carry roughly a a 5% to 10% weighting in non-traditional assets, as I guess you could call it. But in general, to answer your question, yes, I would I would overweight slightly equities, overweight equity. Overweight international. And so as you think about taking your fixed income hat and applying it to equities, I mean, are you a believer that we have, have you know, one of the reasons why we have very high multiples on equities is that we just have very low real rates and and that's pushing multiples higher. Is that one of the reasons to be overweight? Europe and Japan, let's say, that has even lower rates and lower interest rates and actually better earnings yields, so lower P ratios. Is that a reason to be overweight those markets? You know, I, I don't know that that looking at, at the historical PE ratio, yes, right now our actual PE ratios are high, but looking forward at forward PE ratios, that actually brings it right back into 17 times to average forward PEs on the S&P. With, Exactly. So if you're looking at it that way and and earnings growth continues at the projected pace, then no, we're not we're not in a terribly expensive market. But that's the the if. That's the the million dollar question that everyone wants to see is is can earnings growth continue to expand at the pace they've been expanding? Yes, they're going to slow somewhat next year and likely the year after, but will that be able to carry the market as the Fed withdraws some of its monetary stimulus, we're all also counting on the fiscal stimulus to kick in. So there's there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to our allocation to, to equity. And I think that's the important part when putting these portfolios together is being able to to mitigate as much risk as you can, whether it be through adding dividend yielding equities or whether it be through specific factor-based ETFs to try to achieve certain goals out of out of the underlying strategies that that help put these portfolios together. No, Andy. So he just alluded. He he said that he has a sort of different way of thinking about building alternatives into portfolio than you do. Um, maybe talk a little bit 
about your view on on building the equity bond and then this sort of other category yeah so uh i can expand on the a little bit on on the asset allocation framework or the way that i think about the asset allocation framework in any case um we're, we're not actually um numerically overweight equities at the present moment we're equal weight equities so for a client you know your hypothetical 50 50 client we would be at 50 percent equities not hmm. 52 not 53 50 so and we throughout 2017 in actual fact you know with the market up 20 percent uh we were sellers of equities net sellers of equities for clients four times last year um basically across the board in order to stay neutral equities so you know in that 50 50 portfolio if you did nothing last year at the beginning of this year, you wound up in a position where you were 56, 55, 56% equities. That's overweight equities, mm. right? In, our, in the way that I think about asset allocation anyway, you're overweight equities at that, at that point. And so we, you know, we take a, a pretty traditional risk mitigation approach there. And that is when you see big gains in equity markets, you scale it back to the client's strategic neutral. If you are, if you are tactically neutral equities, as an asset class, then you want to remain neutral. So it goes up a couple of percent, you take some profits. That's uh, the the philosophy that, that I apply to it being a bond guy, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Traditionally, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a risk-averse investor just at, at my core. Anyway, so, so just to clarify that, we – I mentioned we're, we're underweight fixed income. And the underweight in fixed income um, squeezes out into the alternative bucket. I made a presumption that so, you're underweight fixed income and overweight equities, and, and you're correcting me here. Yeah, very, no, very no. That, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I don't want to correct the actual, um, the actual sentiment, which is I'd rather own equities than fixed income. Yeah. We're, in actual fact, numerically, we're neutral equities. Mm. But I would much rather own, at this point in the cycle, equities as opposed to fixed income, right? So – yeah. But as John said, one of the goals is at the beginning of a, a relationship with a client is you set out what that number is going to be strategically, right? So we don't move people from being 50% equities to 70% equities. We move p- people from being 50% equities to 55 or 60, right? We have very strict limits around how excited we're going to get uh, about the equity markets from right. a broad asset allocation perspective. So, But we use alternatives as a volatility dampening uh, piece of a total multi-asset portfolio. So it's instead of in using fixed income, yeah, instead of using fixed income as your traditional sort of, you know, I guess, hedge to equity market volatility, which at the moment it doesn't appear to be working that, that well, um, and at times it doesn't work very well, we use alternatives instead. So what, what, what does that mean to you? So what does alternatives mean? So for us, what that means is, um, uh, you know, we we have a we have a, an external advisor uh, that that has built a uh, a volatility dampening uh, low equity beta um, hedge fund of funds for us. Basically, that's the predominance of of the uh, the alternatives exposure in portfolios, and then we have some gold as well. Um, because gold acts as a, as a very non-correlated asset to the equity markets. It doesn't always act as a negatively correlated asset, but it quite often acts pretty well as a low correlation product. 
John, I mean, anyone you want to disagree on any of those types of allocations? Do you, you no, and and I'm not going to disagree. We're we're not in the hedge fund space. Uh, we have used commodities in the past. We have used MLPs or still use mm-hmm. MLPs as an alternative uh, income class or alternative place for total return. You know, I think one of the things that that Andy just said that back, going backwards a little bit to asset allocation within a portfolio, as he said, as markets run up, there's four times last year he was able to scale back. I think the difference between managing most of your portfolios in a, or in his case, without a tax consequence, and managing your portfolios with individuals here and here stateside that, that have a tax consequence usually, is you're constantly managing capital gains and capital losses. And now we've gone through a market for the past eight years where there's not a lot of capital losses in, in portfolios. And working with the clients within Pennsylvania Trust, that becomes some of the, the most skilled management that we have to do is managing client expectation for when to take gains and when to take losses in order to make sure portfolios are not all of a sudden overweight equities by five, six, ten you know, whatever percent. Because if you just allow these portfolios to run, as Andy mentioned, all of a sudden you're 50% weighting to equities up to 58%. And in order to bring it back, it's going to mean take, taking gains. So working with clients is something that we're constantly trying to educate, constantly trying to, to sort of facilitate that discipline to make sure that portfolios remain within the weighting that, that we're recommending or that we want. We're talking with Andy Barron, Chief Investment Officer at Butterfield Asset Management, John Heckscher of of Pennsylvania Trust here, local, Philly-based guy. Um, and, and, you know, w- w- when you guys talk to your clients about the different concerns on their mind, and you sort of alluded to gold as one of the ways to diversify risk, I'm just curious, what are the, some of the questions you're getting from clients today? What's the most popular on their mind, their fears, things that you're looking at, rejecting, any anything that you're you're coming getting coming up in conversations? You mean apart from whether to buy Bitcoin? Or Bitcoin. What's the what's <laughs> the uh you know you said you got a well, lot we of USD based? Yeah, we have uh we've had a lot of inquiry about that uh over the last six months, but it's 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 slowed down decidedly uh hmm. as uh that market has come off the boil. So um I don't want to get in a whole conversation about Bitcoin, that's for sure. Um but uh you know the the i think the overriding the overriding uh sort of feeling that we get from clients is um they're very concerned about the about the uh the the global geopolitical environment right there's to be to be perfectly honest with you over the last several years it would have been perfectly fine to uh to just ignore the global uh global political uh, geopolitical environment and uh, remain invested. Honestly, um, you could have, you know, turned off CNN for the entire year or Fox, depending on your, uh, uh, depending on your on your political uh, uh, leaning, but and just you know done just fine. But we consistently, very very consistently, hear a lot from clients about uh, you know what's going on in the world and geopolitical risk. Um, we also, you know, we also we're also not in the United States, and so. Um, that gives us a little bit of a, an interesting insight, being predominantly dollar investors and not being in the United States. Um, you get a lot of uh, interesting views about 
uh, about the direction of politics in the United States that uh, uh, from from people from all over the world. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, people are concerned. Definitely. Um, you know, they 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 understand. I think I think people understand um, that the that the E is moving in P.E. Right. Um, and that earnings are good and the economy is is relatively strong in the U.S. in particular. But, you know, they're worried. They're worried. They remain worried. I mean, I think when you talk about being a dollar based investor and what the currencies are, one of the things that's moved a lot in the last few years. And I think part of it's been well, you have rates moving up, which is one of the factors that we're taught in currency models that should move currencies. But then you had politics, which is this overriding fear factor that I think in some ways created a weak dollar environment. Any views on that as, as dollar-based investors on, on how to think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, 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 the dollar got, you know, strong um, in, in a period where uh, there was nowhere else to go in the world. Uh, for yield assets, right? And so you had a situation where you had the entire developed market world, the entire the entirety of the developed market central banks um, pumping money into into the system and creating a negative yield environment in Europe and a negative yield environment in Japan. Um, and you saw a lot of actual money, actual portfolio flows coming out of euro-denominated assets, particularly in the fixed income space, coming out of yen-denominated assets and building these big dollar fixed income portfolios. It happened. There was a flow there. There was a constant momentum to go to dollars. Even though the U.S. was at ultra-low interest rates, the, the eurozone, you know, German bunds, for example, became an uninvestable market for most people. You can't be an insurance company in Europe and invest in in ten year bonds or thirty year bonds at at negative. It, it you can't do that. You can't be a Japanese life insurance company and do that either. And so you saw a you saw real portfolio flows into the dollar markets, into the treasury market, into uh, the investment grade corporate market in the United States. And then it stopped. And... And, well, it's 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 lessening. Mm. It's lessening as interest rates normalize. That that portfolio flow stops, right? So I'm not saying that people are selling their dollar assets and buying all of a sudden buying German bonds or anything like that at the moment. But it's a portfolio flow argument, right? So the flows happened, and it supported that market. And if the flow stops, sometimes the direction of travel or the the default direction of travel is is the other way it, it there's it yeah. hardly ever stays you know one direction flat, forever yeah right <laughs> particularly currency markets so i think that i think that you know a lot of people got the the dollar call wrong but you know i think if they looked at the portfolio flows and the fact that people are starting to change their minds about the directionality of global central banks in terms of continuing with quantitative easing the ecb eventually will be finished with their program maybe i don't <laughs> i don't know i don't i don't have a, a direct line into mario draghi or anything so you know when people start changing their minds in that in that space and the portfolio flow dries up sometimes the direction of travel is is just completely in the other direction so yeah. well and i i'd also add with the recent sort of pickup in trade in a trade war you know fears as well as some of the numbers coming out of Europe more recently that's that's weaker what that's done is it's pushed off some of the 
of the ECB's, at least the, the perception of, of the ECB ending their program. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen the dollar rally a, a, a bit here, against, especially against Europe, in that you've seen that prolonged easing period potentially go beyond 2018. I think there was a talk, and everyone's expecting that, that Draghi and the ECB are going to eventually end their, their program. And that, I think, started the flow back into, out of dollars, back into to the euro, and with numbers weakening. And, and numbers in Europe are still fine. They're still healthy in general, um, just like they are here. But I think that interest rate differential, if you're going to push that off in Europe, becomes quite enticing. And I think that's where you saw some flow back into the dollar more recently. This last few weeks, as rates started creeping to 3%, it sort of triggered something. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, 3% is only a number, right? I don't think 3% means anything. But at the end of the day, if everybody starts talking about the, 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 the directionality of interest rates in the United States... And if they and if people have over the last six seven months have sort of been ignoring the fact that um, interest rate differentials have been rising, um, you know, th- there's there's usually a tangible uh, trigger point where people say, "Wait, that's not the right number, right?" So you need to be, for, for the way that I view things anyway, is you need to be looking for those for those types of things to occur before they people start thinking, "Oh, well, that's not the right number." You need to be looking at it and saying, so, you know, in the middle of 2016, we we're saying 140 tenure is not the right number, right? And so we need to be positioned for the fact that that's not the right number. In 2017, for example, when volatility was extremely low in equity markets, we we're saying that is not the right number. You cannot have a sustained environment that has an 11% assumed forward volatility when the market itself has traded at 16 to 17% volatility for 140 years. Like that's the wrong number. Sustainable, yeah. Right. It's not sustainable. That's the wrong number. So for us, that means we want volatility dampening in the portfolio. Um, you know, and you have to be looking for those things. To be perfectly honest, we were way too early adding, adding volatility dampening to the portfolio. We were overweight alternative assets all of last all of last year, and it did us no good from a broad sector uh, basis um, until it does. Yep. Right. And it did in the first quarter. So, so John, we got a final three minute countdown. Um, any parts of the market high level that we haven't covered? You think uh, you know? Sort of, we've talked a little bit about your equity views, a bit overweight equities. Any parts that you want to highlight how you're how you're positioned and things that that Pennsylvania Trust focused on? No, you know, I think the important thing that that we're trying to impress towards our clients is that, as Andy just said, the volatility that we've had in the market is very normal. It's been abnormal for a while now. It's returned to normal, and and that's something that that should be expected. You know, I just had a, a chart passed to me this morning, just to give you an example. It, we're coming into a mid-year election, usually a very political sort of gets gets hot, goes both ways, market ends up being more volatile. You know, the average decline in a, in a mid, mid-year election turn is 19%. So that's volatility. And what we're seeing is no different in a mid-year election. The, 
when you look forward, though, what you tend to see coming out of an election is a is a rebound. And with the fiscal stimulus that's coming through through the tax programs that have been enacted, we think that the consumer in the U.S. will be fine. We think corporate America will be fine. And the stock market will ultimately, while being more volatile, will be a perfect, perfectly fine place to be. That being said, we want to make sure to our clients and impress to our clients that we, we want to remain balanced. And if that means adding fixed income back to, to draw us back to what we consider balanced, doing so in a thoughtful process will still mitigate that volatility and still give the returns that ultimately are there to, to meet the individual goal. Any other uh, thing, closing thoughts about Pennsylvania Trust, things you want people to find you for? You know, again, as I, as I sort of said when we started, we, we sort of pride ourselves on being a, a very personalized um, team that works very well with individual clients to help cultivate uh, goals, really working with families, whether it be multi-generational, whether it be individuals, helping them figure out how to move themselves along in in the life cycle of of wealth i think that that becomes hugely important as as we move into a later stages of of a of a cycle and where we can sort of separate ourselves as being able to give that individualized service that sometimes when you look at the the large organizations out there that that tend to be more retail focused and and etf pure ETF focused, aren't able to sort of work with the client as an individual or as a family. Well, very good. We just sort of ran out of time. Andy Barron of Butterfield Asset Man, John Hexter, Pennsylvania Trust, thank you both for coming to the studio and being with us here on the program today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.